0: for his powerful and uh, sweet, convicting ministry and encouraging to us. Open your Bibles to the Psalms 104, please. We're going to consider this evening the creative glory of the Father, and I want us to look at it through this particular psalm. I'm not going to read all of it. I'll read certain portions. Let us pray before we hear the word of God again. Father, we thank you for your grace. That you never slumber nor sleep. That you are our keeper. That, Father, you go before us and behind us. You surround us with your mercies. And you are full of grace and goodness. Thank you for your kindness to us this day that we can come and gather as your blood-bought people by your spirit to be able to be encouraged, to be able to lift up your songs of praise, to approach you, to have such access to you through the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. Thank you, Lord God, that by the spirit that we can be renewed, be reinvigorated, refreshed in our hearts and souls. And Lord, also be instructed and have our minds enlightened. And so will you grant us that enlightenment, that refreshment, that renewal of soul. Father, even by your grace, regeneration for those who are still in darkness, that you might open their eyes to see your glory. Father, we thank you for your truth, inerrant, perfect, infallible. And may we, in the hearing of it, be edified, and Lord, through the preaching of it, be strengthened in our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, Thou art very great. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty, covering Thyself with light as with a cloak, stretching out heaven like a tent curtain. He lays the beams of His upper chambers In the waters he makes the clouds his chariot. He walks upon the wings of the wind. He makes the winds his messengers. Flaming fire his ministers. He established the earth upon its foundations. So that will not totter forever and ever. Thou didst cover it with the deep as with a garment. The waters were standing above the mountains. At thy rebuke they fled. At the sound of thy thunder they hurried away. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place which thou didst establish for them. Thou didst set a boundary that they may not pass over, that they may not return to cover the earth. He sends forth springs in the valleys, they flow between the mountains, they give drink to every beast of the field, the wild donkeys quench their thirst, beside them the birds of the heavens dwell, they lift up their voices among the branches, he waters the mountains from his upper chambers, the earth is satisfied with the fruit of his works, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine that makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil and food which sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill, the cedars of Lebanon which he planted, where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. Thou dost appoint darkness, and it becomes night, in which all the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey, and they seek their food from God. When the sun rises, they withdraw and lie down in their dens. Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. O Lord, how many are thy works? In wisdom, Thou hast made them all. Our Father, we thank You for this poetic version of creation and the description of Your power, Your wisdom, and Your goodness. As we come this night to consider Your glory as our Creator, O Father, may we be edified, may we be strengthened, May we, like the earth itself, be established in you by faith, unmovable, Lord, and strong. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth and all things visible and invisible. So says the ancient creed. As you may know, since time began, men have had their creeds, and men have had their searching for really the, maybe the pot of gold, as it were, the old alchemists themselves sought to find what, what device or what invention could turn base metals into gold, and they thought even to try to find out what What would be the universal solvent that would be able to dissolve everything? What could they find that would be able to hold that universal solvent? And if you think about it, nothing. If it's a universal solvent, nothing will hold it. So it was a vain search. But men nowadays, especially in terms of creation, uh, are on a search. The the modern alchemists, chemists, uh, not chemists so much, but scientists, what we'd call um, maybe cosmologists and uh, physics guys. What do you call a physics guy? Okay, that's right. Okay, (laughs) I'm thinking of physicians, and I said, that doesn't sound right. They're seeking to find what they would call a single universal, unifying principle, a hypothetical, and it is a hypothetical framework that will be able to... Describe for us the origin and the sustaining of the universe. Some universal principle and foundation that explains origins and where it's all going. It's called the theory of everything. You might have seen the movie, I didn't see it on Stephen Hawking, I think, The Physicist. But it is, a, it is one of the major unsolved problems in physics. How did this world come into being? And what accounts for all that happens in it? Glory be to God that we don't have to live by hypothetical theories. Glory be to the Father that we don't have to be ignorant of origins. We know how all things happen to be. We have not a theory of everything. We have a theology of everything. We have a theology of creation. And it begins with the word of God at the very beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so the perfect revelation tells us the beginning of everything. And who is the creator of everything. And that's what I want to consider here. Everything owes its existence to God, who is our Father. The Scriptures does not begin with proof. It begins with declaration of the reality. It does not debate this scenario. The cosmology of the Bible deals with one source, God Himself. He is the unified field theory for everything that exists and everything that continues. The beginning starts with God, who had no beginning. It begins with this God who, before there was time and space, purposed, as, as I heard one preacher say, nothing, you're going to be something. And that is what he did. All things out of nothing. Which means there was nothing. There was not time, there was not space, there was not matter, there were not angels, there were not um. Uh, anything created at all. And so this uncreated, everlasting God who precedes all existence with whom there are no hypotheticals and no theories created all things. The uncreated reality behind all reality that there is. And when we speak of everything, we mean everything. We mean time, space, matter, visible, invisible, material, spiritual, angels, principalities, powers, things that cannot be seen, things galactic, things atomic, things microscopic, things of all whatever character and nature there are, anything that is, is because of him. He did it all by his word. He spoke it into being. He did it with incredible ease. He made something out of nothing with no sweat at all. It was the very power of God himself that brought it all into being by his own word. Now, in the Old Testament, we have that again, God himself manifested in that unity. But there are what we'd call adumbrations, or if you want to use a nicer, easier word, hints of the Trinity. Even in the very beginning of the account, in the beginning, Elohim, itself a plural noun that even as men would try to explain, is a plural of majesty, which is appropriate, but we understand how plural and excellent that majesty is now in light of the New Testament revelation. A God who himself had took and had discussion with himself as a prologue to the creation of man in his own image. Let us make man. And these things begin in terms of the New Testament to shine their light back into that old and inform us, indeed, that our triune God is the creator of all things and everything that there is. Now, this God as the supreme and true God, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this creation is the work of all of them simultaneously, at the same time, the Father, really, again, as the proposer and purposer of that work, the Son Himself as the divine agent through which all things came into being, and the Spirit Himself, in, imminent in that creation, the imminent agent, bringing it to pass and sustaining it in life. This is the God whom we worship, and this is the doctrine that I want to deal with, is this doctrine of the creative glory of the Lord. For what reason did God create all things? Because he willed it. That's the best and highest answer. For what reason? Because he willed it to be. We might say, for what end did he will it to be? And the simple answer to that is simply this, for the manifestation and praise of his glory because the creation itself ultimately would be another means whereby He Himself would manifest His divine perfections, the excellence of His own character and beauty, power, wisdom, and goodness. And that he, and that beauty and goodness would be enjoyed by His creation. It is that He might be glorified, and that we ourselves might enjoy His glory. That we might see His glory in the created order. And that we might respond to it as we ought. And that's His purpose here. As we we look at this, what I want to do is use Psalm 104 to inform our minds and Lord willing, stir up our hearts with regard to this, this glory of God. If we look at the heavens, if we look at the earth, if we look at the things around us, what is it that we ought to see? Just three things. We ought to see the greatness of God in his power, we ought to see the wisdom of God, and we ought to see the goodness of God. This is what we ought to see. This is what we ought to to realize. This, This psalm itself is a poetic version of Genesis, and I want you to see what he wants us to see because this is what he wants us to see. This is what he wants us to realize in this created order about himself. And Lord willing, I can at least assist in some way, I hope, in your own worship of this glorious God. First of all, this is the first heading. The Father is incomparably great in creation. Bless the Lord, says the psalmist. O my soul, O Lord my God, the creation is very great. Is that what it says? No, it doesn't say the creation is very great. It says you are very great. You are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself as with, a clo- with light as with a cloak. It's a good observation, isn't it, that where his worship goes is not to the things that he sees, nor the gifts around him which creation is, but it goes to God himself as he opens this up. The universe is great, but the creator is greater. Nature is to be marveled at. It's not to be deified. Not to be worshipped, and for maybe for some of those that may have the bumper sticker, the earth is not your mother. Nature is not your father. Uh, God is the one who is over all things. And so, as we look at this, I want us to consider this this stage of it. And 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 as I do that, as we look, notice as he begins, and and he begins with two aspects of creation. Verse two. He begins with that aspect of the heavens themselves. And in verse 5, he established the earth. These these verses 1 through 9 in one sense establish uh, the the greatness of God in in his power and his setting forth of the created order. Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty. And and some say as you look at this psalm, you could could almost break it down into the days of creation if you wanted to. And it is fairly creative and it it may have some... um, uh some analogy but it's it 's a little bit hard for me to keep up with it uh and see it aligning that way but uh it is a creation hymn and so as we look at this, I want you to uh begin to first of all speak about the father uh, incredibly great in the heavens, incredibly great in the heavens, stretching out the heaven like a tent curtain one in another place in the in the psalms we're told to lift up our eyes and behold the heavens and see the glory of God. And in Isaiah 40, we find these words as we we begin to consider these things. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by a span, calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, Weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales. Who has done this? And as you remember, God's uh, refrain often in terms of the created order and in terms of all things is his incomparability. And that's why I use he's incomparably great. To whom will you liken me? And in this chapter, he does that. And he does it in terms of what he's done here and what he's created. And so we see this right now as we look at this, and I want to focus again uh, on that created order. Notice what it says, and I'm, I'm just speaking with regard to Isaiah. It says that he, he measures the waters in the hallow of his hand. He can put it in his hand, is it were. One of the things we want to understand is what God is doing is expanding by picture his own greatness. As a little kid, I would think, how much water is there in the earth how much water is there on the earth and and one of those questions can be answered now thanks to google and all that 326 million trillion gallon, gallons he measures that much in his hand and where in other words it's it's it, it's barely anything for him notice who marks off the heaven by a span marks it off that much My text says, you know, in in the Psalms, it says he stretched out the heavens. Do you want to know how big of a stretch that is? Right now, scientists believe that the universe is 93 million light years. I can't put enough zeros by a one to let you know how many miles that is. But I can tell you, at least the nearest star, Alpha Centauri, is 4.3 light years. 4.3. Well, that's, that's not like 93 million, is it? 93. In fact, I, I'm not even sure if I had that number right as I was looking at it. In fact, it's 93 billion light years. To get to the nearest star would take 4.3 light years. Now, it took me four and a half hours to get from L.A. to Charlotte. And that was at 500 miles an hour. Let's just say that I got in uh, uh, um, Maverick's uh, F-18 Super Hornet. Let's say I could get close to Mach 1 and go 1,000 miles an hour. If I could go 1,000 miles an hour nonstop, you know, no service included, it would take me 3 million years to get to the nearest star. Three million years. That's the closest star in our solar system. It is big. The span of God is huge. It is massive. It goes a long, massive distance, and it's not even stretched out. The nearest galaxy is a mere 2.5 million light years away. It would take, someone estimated, our, the James, now it's, it's the new telescope, that was, the James Webb Space Telescope that it was uh, uh, launched last December. Now it's not Hubble anymore. In fact, this has, a, this has a, a lens eight times larger than that one. It is the most sophisticated now telescope that is seeing far, far deeper into space than the Hubble could ever see. And there's a lot of interesting things that it has seen. Uh, but it can it can go at least 14 billion miles, and if we took that F-18 and kept going past Alpha Centauri nonstop, then it would take us 10 quadrillion years to get to what we can see as the as far as our telescopes could see. 10 quadrillion years is 10 with 16 zeros after it. I mean. God made that. God made that. And the James Webb telescope appears to tell us that that was all done in an instant. Because the the age of the universe as they see it here and now is the same things that they are seeing with that James Webb telescope way at the edge of the universe, supposedly, So many billions of years old. The thing that surprises them now is that it looks exactly like ours, which is supposed to be the oldest, most evolved. In other words, it really, in many ways, it's letting us know this this is what he does. He stretches the heavens and we look at it and say, yeah, I can see him. I can see it all. But this is how far it goes. It says, "By the word of his mouth, the heavens were made," and it says, "The host by the breath of his mouth, the stars by the breath of his mouth." If you look at the stars, they tell us nowadays. If you look up in a nice, clear sky on a clear day, you can see four thousand stars. Have you ever tried to count them? I did that too. You sit there, and you're laying in your sleeping bag with your brother right next to you, and you're starting to count the stars. And you said, "Did I do that one? Yeah. Did, did I count those?" And you know, and you give up. Maybe at six. <laughs> I, I mean, that's almost what it was. On a good night, we can see four thousand stars, but our own Milky Way galaxy contains one hundred and fifty to two hundred billion stars. That's just our little tiny galaxy. And the the reality is there are estimated to be 150 billion more galaxies. So I don't even want to start. But you understand, it says, The host of them, by the breath of his mouth... He spreads out a universe which man himself, with all of his sophisticated technology, cannot come to the ends of. No telescope can see the farthest fringes of what it is. We see, as Job says, but the fringes of his ways, and we're talking about billions of light years. Light travels six trillion miles a year. We're at, we can barely see that, and, and now it says by his very breath, as it were, he breathes out more stars than we could think of. And then what does the Scripture says? He leads them out, their host by number, and then he does this. He calls them by name. I mean, I've got ten grandchildren. I'm doing pretty good keeping their names. But here it is. In other words, what is it telling me? It's telling me something about God himself. That the I mean, man himself, scientists themselves, they themselves are revealing indeed how large our God is in terms of his mighty power. He's limitless. And as far as man can see, as far as man can see, there is the handiwork of the almighty God. Our sun is such a big deal. Our sun is mighty and powerful. There is a sun in our galaxy. There is a sun in our galaxy that is four hundred times the size of the sun. The sun has a million mile diameter. You could put a hundred Earths in it. And this sun, you could put a, you could put four hundred of our suns in it. It is so big that if you put it in the middle of our solar system, uh, it would uh, embrace Mars. That big. That is huge. And that is mighty. In other words, these are the product of his hand. These are the things which he makes. The sun itself every second is, is doing 10 to the 36th power of hydrogen explosions every second. Fusion reactions are taking place uh, at a a massive scale. Things that would were far enough away that all we see is feel the heat and see the beauty of the sun, but it is a marvelous, marvelous star itself that has a marvelous and mighty creator who has made something so large and so awesome, so sustained, that indeed it still marvels us. All of these things remind us of the glory of God. And it says, because of the greatness of His might and the strength of His power, the psalmist says not one of them is missing. He sustains that which we can't even see. He has His hands on everything that we come to the end of our own abilities to grasp. This is the heavens. Lift your eyes on the high and see who created these things they are telling of the glory of God it says in this in this particular psalm as it speaks further about this particular work of God it moves down to the creation itself of the earth and as he says he established the earth on its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever isn't it amazing did you ever feel a jolt in the earth as it takes its path along the along its orbit around the sun Have you ever felt a bump? Did it ever take a a side road? Did it ever fit and start? It goes on its path all the time without any kind of interference. He put it in its place and it's going around at an incredible speed. It says it shall not be moved. The reality is we shall not be moved on it. But the reality is it's moving in its divinely ordered invisible track without noise, without jolt at 67,000 miles an hour and the windows down. And actually, not only that, as it goes around the earth that fast, our earth is going with the sun around the galaxy at 492,000 miles an hour. And I'm giving you these things, not in a sense because you say, well, where is that in the Bible? It isn't there. That isn't there. But the sun that you're seeing, the stars that you look at, the universe that surrounds us, that we can see, and the very earth that we are standing on is the product of his will and pleasure. He says, who will you compare me to? Because all of this, I will weigh the dust of the earth in my scales. I can can stretch out my hand to the span. And this is how great and this is how grand and glorious is our God. What's the application of this in a very simple way? The everlasting Lord, the creator of the universe, will he ever weary Will he ever grow tired as the application that he makes? This one who can make a universe, this one who can make an earth, this one whose strength uh, and extent of power and control goes to the ends of the universe, is this the one that's ever going to get tired and weary? Watts himself, Isaac Watts in that wonderful, that wonderful children's hymn, I Sing the Power of Almighty God says, art thou afraid his power shall fail when comes the evil day? And can an all-creating arm get weary or decay? In other words, what we are to learn from the creation is the strength and the power, the steadfastness and greatness of God. Spurgeon says, listen, if I build up men, you'll be cowards. If I build up God, you'll be as strong as lions. Because he's great. Because he's great. He's the upholder. He speaks and the mountains rise and the valleys go down. He's the one who is working all of these things after the counsel of his own precious and good will. Stability. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth that he is above all rulers, all authorities? who has made the heavens and the earth. This is, this is the encouragement for us. Can he handle you? I remember that. And sometimes that's the sad statement. I don't, you know, Heaven can't, doesn't want me and hell can't handle me. You've heard that from unbelievers. God has no problem handling unbelievers. God handled and made the whole universe. He has no problem. The devil is his junkyard dog tied to his own will. And so all of these things no can he handle, is there anything really too big for God for you? Is there anything that he can't do? What is insurmountable to you, what is inconceivable to us is nothing major to him. What are man that you are mindful of him as we consider the expanse and greatness of those things? And yet he is pleased. He is pleased in his mercy to call us to his son and make us his servants that we might give him glory and praise. I want to go to the second one. The father is inscrutably wise. The father is inscrutably wise in his works. And I want you to see this wisdom. Lord, you are very great, but I want you to see I want you to see his wisdom here as just starting with verse 17. The, 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 some earlier verses speak of what I will speak of later is goodness, but in verse 17, he begins to speak of the, of the birds in the trees. The birds build their nests in the cedars of Lebanon, that's verse 16, and the stork st- whose ho- home is in the fir trees. They have their time, they have their place. The high mountains are for the wild goats. The cliffs are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon, now moving up from the earth into the heavens. He made the moon for the seasons. The sun knows the place of its setting. The inanimate creation, as well as the animate creation, has its time and place, and even marks time and place. Thou dost appoint darkness, and it becomes night, in which all of the beasts of the forest prowl about. The young lions roar after their prey. At night they come out. They seek their food from God, and when the sun rises, they withdraw. They go back to their place. They have their season. They have their time. And when they go back into their dens, then we're told that man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. Oh, Lord, how many, how many are your works in wisdom? You've made them all. This was the wisdom that boggled the mind of Job. You remember Uh, Anthony spoke about Job himself as God began to give his answer to Job in the midst of his own complaints that he did offer in the struggle of what he was going through. But it was in chapters 38 to the end of Job that Job received, what, from God? 55 questions. No statements, just questions. Where were you when I established the foundation of the earth? Do you explain the way of the ostrich? Can you explain the way of the wild donkeys? Can you explain the way? Can you yourself fight with Leviathan or Behemoth? And God, all he began to do was unload upon Job, not the answer to his questions, but a thousand questions, 55, 55 55 questions for him to say, wise up, man. Who do you think I am? And that is where he goes. I'm great, whether you are well off or not. I'm in control, whether you are well off or not. And so, this is where it goes. And it is Job there that begins to be humbled under the reality of God's creative work and his creative design. And this is what we see in Psalm 104. We see that this God Himself, who created with infinite power, also Himself had conscious purpose. That our universe is not some kind of impersonal creation, but one that is conscious and personal by the hand of God. Look at the rich variety uh, in this. I mean, even this very section here, the rich variety of all of the uh, uh, the distinction, as it were, between the, the trees and the cedars, between the birds and the stork, between the Wild goats and the badgers. He he throws all the creatures in and then he throws them in again after speaking of God's wisdom in 25. And there's the sea, he says, great and broad with our swarms without number. Animals both great and small. Species of all unnumbered variables which he could not even anticipate. Every drop of water as it were containing life of all kinds of nature. Whether it's microscopic or as large as a whale. All of these things, and he's amazed by this, the creation of the order. They all have their forms. They all have their tasks. Plants, animals, humans are all distinct. And yet with all of their marvelous roles and all of the variety of, was of, the, of the earth itself in terms of its landscape in terms of its foliage, in terms of the creatures that that inhabit it, in terms of the creatures that inhabit the heavens and the earth and those invisible realms of which we ourselves have just bare knowledge of, all of these things. God is the one who wisely created them with all of these distinctions, distinctions in roles, distinctions in gender, Distinctions and tasks and abilities there 's not a plant or flower below said one that makes but makes your glories known. the variety of it all, and, and then, in the midst of that variety, the intricate harmony of it all that these these various species and creatures that have their time and place are able to exercise and have that time and place in a realm of harmony. An intricate harmony in which each of them in some way contributes to the welfare of the other, even if it's munching on them. But it's all getting worked out according to the Lord's purposes. And so you have this, you have this unified field theory that Matthew Henry calls an admirable chain and connection of causes. Everything is so finely tuned and it's interesting because those physicists themselves they themselves look at the at the electromagnetic forces and the gravitational forces that in themselves are reacting against one another and it is so finely tuned these are secular secular physicists they're so finely tuned that if they were not so tuned uh, that stars themselves would not form and then those who just, who go into the atomic level and, and begin to look at the very atom itself and says the relationship of the size of the electron to the neutron itself is so finely tuned. And again, I, I it's in terms of magnitude, so finely tuned within 1 over 10 to the 40th. What that means is it's the most precise, what we might say it's impossible tuning. Because it goes it goes beyond the idea of statistical probability, and yes, it is expressed in such a way. So finely tuned is that relationship that there would be no molecular structures apart from that. And so all of that is harmonized, all of that is, is put together, all of that is so finely fit together that Stephen Hawking himself, in his own personal biography, said, Looking at all of those things, and and speaking of that fine-tuning, said it would be very difficult to explain why the universe should have begun in just this way, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. He was forced to say, in in light of that, though he would never admit that, he would put it as the most, we might say, the most likely proposition that there is for the existence of of all things. He does not want to acknowledge that. But that is the reality. It all fits together. There is a dynamic rhythm as it were. Even in the motion and everything else. It's, isn't it amazing. How things do operate and flow together. I mean we can see those on, on all the little. National geographic discovery. We, we can see what we ought to see. Even though men come to the wrong conclusions about it. But this is the handiwork of God. And this is the glory of God. We can't even synchronize stoplights. And we feel really good if we can. Do you understand? Again, the whole created order itself is, is under the hand of this God this, in this intricate harmony and rhythm. So ordered is it That everything that happens in the cosmos can be explained mathematically. That men given minds can conceive and describe that activity of God as it were those hidden laws that cannot be resisted. The law of gravitational attraction. These laws themselves operate with an, what would we say, uh, an undebatable... Irrevocable firmness. And and this is, we can express those things mathematically. The reason we can go to the moon is because we know where the moon's going to be when we shoot off our rocket at the certain time. All of these things are the the product of the hand of God, all the wisdom of God that made it all. It's a settled order. In fact, it seems to me. It seems to me that scientists should be the most uh, humble and happiest people on earth. I mean, if you, in fact, medics, uh, doctors ought to be the most humble and happiest people on earth. Why? Because they're spending their time looking at the handiwork of God. What it manifests to us is indeed the blindness of men. What it... Is, convinces us of is this man is blind because that profession is the most blessed if their eyes were opened because you can see these things and this is what we have this is the this is the beauty of the Lord one of the uh, a man named Brian Green who who wrote a book called the elegant universe and, and, and is a promoter of and you don't have to worry about this spring it's called string theory you say string theory you know, yeah, but but it, it's recognized in one sense. But I want you to hear how he describes string theory. I want you to hear how he describes it himself. He says it's the microscopic fabric of our universe, and, and, and he's he's proposing this string theory as that unified theory of everything. He says this 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 fabric is a richly intertwined, multi-dimensional labyrinth within which the strings of the universe endlessly twist and vibrate, rhythmically beating out the laws of the cosmos. I'm going, well, who's the master of that? Do you hear it? He's basically saying those little strings that are vibrating, they themselves in that wonderful multi-dimensional labyrinth you know it says they themselves are rhythmically beating out the laws of the cosmos who made the laws who caused them to beat who who i guess strum, strums the strings as it were it's god himself it's God Himself. He's the maestro of it all, and man himself can simply just look and look at askance and just turn his eye away. But there is this beauty of harmony in the midst of the created order, which again the psalmist sees. You've made all of this, all of it has its time, all of it has its place, all of it has its boundaries, all of it has its usefulness, all of it has its unique skills and gifts, just as we are uniquely skilled and gifted as his creation. This is is, uh, what Isaiah says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord? As his counselor, who has counseled him? Who has told him how to do anything, really? Does he know what he's doing? Have you ever asked that question? God, do you know what you're doing? Or have you ever thought, I don't think he knows what he's doing? And you wonder, and it remains a mystery to our finite minds. But there are no mysteries, there are no conundrums. For God himself, who created all things, is able to name all the stars and tell you where they are right now. And what they're doing right now. Who is able to know every creature in its own existence, how he made it, what he made it for, and knows all those things in an instant. There are no difficulties with him It all exists and operates by His wisdom. God didn't answer any of Job's questions. He just humbled him. Trust me. Look at what I've done. Look at what I'm able to do. He can order all your affairs, can He? To your eternal good? Is He he who is able to to manage the the smallest little uh, quark? That's what I understand as part of the strings. It's the smallest. He who is able to maintain the order and orbit of galaxies that we have not yet perceived, is he unable, who is able to do things microscopically and galactically, is he unable to deal with each of the little microscopic details of our life or the major issues of our lives? Because this is our Creator, and the Creator who has now taken an interest in us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Tell me how he does it. How does he make all things of nothing? I don't know. I have no idea. How did he make the world? I don't know. How can he sustain the world? I don't know. How he directs all things, even sin and evil, to his own glory? I don't know. But he does it. And he was running the universe before I got here. And he's going to be running it after I'm gone. And he's running it now while we're here. He's in control of our lives. This is the one, the sovereignty ought to come in to play here. That this sovereign God who himself purposed to make this created order in which he himself by his own will would put creatures in it that might be able to enjoy relationship with him and enjoy him for who he is in all of his glorious power, wisdom and goodness. Will he not be caring and wise and good to us? Well, that's the next last part that I want to. It's this, the Father is aboundingly, incredibly good in His creation. And that's where I want to just see it, verse 10 through 13. It says, listen, He sends forth springs in the valleys. They flow between the mountains. They give drink to every beast of the field. You remember Christ? Again, mentioned by Anthony. Anthony. With regard to look at the trees, look at I mean look at the flowers of the field, how they're clothed, look at the birds of the air, how they're fed. Look at the creation itself, look how God himself provides and orders all things. And here it is. Here's is the one who gives drink to every beast of the field, to the wild donkeys, the one that no one can get their hands on, God to take care of them. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They lift up their voices. He waters the mountains from His upper chambers. And the earth is satisfied with the fruit of His works. Will He leave you unsatisfied in your greatest needs? Will He? He causes the grass to grow for the cattle's vegetation for the labor of man. That He may bring forth food from the earth. The wine that makes man's heart glad, not drunk. So that he may make his face glisten with oil and the food that sustains man's heart. The trees of the Lord drink their fill. The cedars of Lebanon which he planted. The Lord himself is all sufficient and all caring of what he created. It's goodness. It's his goodness that marks him. And it wasn't because he was lonely. It wasn't because he was needy. He's absolutely satisfied with himself. And he has always been. He he did it simply because He would. There isn't anything in us that contributes anything to His glory more than He already has. And He, for His glory's sake, will create this realm, this this creation, as it were, as the theater, the marvelous theater, uh, to manifest to us in the physical order His wisdom and His power and His goodness to us. It's, it just simply created us out of the overflow of His goodness that we might share in the beauty of His greatness. It's blessed goodness. Of, it says, of all, of all the creation, we're the ones who are made in His image. Of all of these beautiful, these beautiful things of which he speaks, man is the ultimate of his creation, created uniquely, physically, intellectually in ability, and all those things created, as we're told in Acts, to seek him. When I see him, I want to seek him. When I see what he's done, I can trust him. When I see his wisdom, I myself can depend on him. With a capacity to enjoy Him. This is what He did to glorify Him by rejoicing in His own glory manifested in the created order. It's a bountiful goodness as we see here. Giving to every creature and, and He did it. Remember He did it for Adam. Adam could have every tree in the garden. Except for one. And they were all what? Good for food. Everything. It was an abundance it was a buffet you could not even imagine. It just had one, just keep your mitts off of that. That was all it was. His bountiful care is described here. All of these flowing, satisfying streams. He waters the mountains, the valleys. Won't he care for us? He provides these varied gifts, as it were, out of the created order for us. It's beautiful and it's bountiful. And isn't it glorious that the very things that he creates for us we can enjoy? Aren't you glad when you, well, I'm trying to think of where you might, well, Chick-fil-A, we just had it. I mean, aren't you glad that a Chick-fil-A has taste? I mean, God could feed us and strengthen us, but what does he do? He gives us tongues to taste it. We can taste the things that he gives us that helps us. He gives us eyes that are not black and white, but color of every hue and everything else that we can enjoy the autumns in North Carolina and not the dryness of California. He gives us noses that we can smell. I mean, COVID ought to make us very grateful. I mean, some people lost Their taste and smell. And now you realize. What a gift. What a gift it is. This is what God has done. In all of us. That we can ourselves can hear. We can hear strings. Not those little silent things. Wherever they might be. And how minuscule. But the strings of instruments. That we can hear tones. That we can hear music. God God wants us to be not simply spectators of what he makes, but those who enjoy what he makes. This is made to be enjoyed. This is made to be treasured. This is made to mine out through the senses that God gives us how wonderful it is and how we ourselves can enjoy it. This is the kindness of God, smelling mown grass. When I ride my bike going past the cilantro field, my mouth starts watering for chips. All of these kinds of things, all of these beautiful realities and this broad goodness over all things, everything itself contributing to all things. This is, there's not a spot in the universe where the spark of God's glory is not shining. And there are some places where it really shines really nicely. I suppose that's why you are here in North Carolina. Well, i just got to be here. That's where I got the job. I don't know. Well, that was the mercy of God, too. But you have all of these blessings of, of the, the idea. In other words, what is behind all of this? All of this was to be a reflection of His goodness to us. This is a good creation. Yes, it's fallen. Isn't it amazing? Even though it's fallen, it still yields beauty. Even though fallen, it still is a place that is delightful to be in, to enjoy a 72-degree day today, here, at least in the afternoon. And the beauty of the freeze in itself that brings the changes in the seasons. All of this is the handiwork of God, this broad and great and glorious goodness. And He remains good. He remains good in all He does. Everything created by God, 1 Timothy 4.4, created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with if it is received with gratitude. This is our great God, mighty, and I, I, I've explained it probably in different kinds of terms and would be normally used with regard to these things. Not to not to kind of just, in a sense, overwhelm with facts, but it, that we ourselves might be overwhelmed with Him. In that sense, overwhelmed with Him in terms of who He is that we can trust Him. And in the created order ought to give us much. Yes, his inspired this, this revelation, not the natural revelation, but the scriptural revelation is sufficient. But this natural revelation is glorious as well as it manifests God in His mercy and kindness to us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. And this is the mercy. As we live in this created realm, ask God to open your eyes and help you, your ears, your mind, and your heart engaged. Humbled, yet rejoicing. Humbled because we are. We don't deserve any of it. God didn't need to do this. God did it because he would. But he did it so that his glory might be seen in those which he created and that we might seek him and call upon him and draw near to him through his son whom he sent, the son who took up the nature of our creation and in that nature bore our judgment that we could go free and be pardoned, that we could worship this God in our lives and in the created order. May God help us. This is our God who is too mighty to fail, too wise to err, and too good to do bad. And the psalmist himself, as he closes all of this, he says, verse 31, let the glory of the Lord endure forever. Let the earth, let the Lord be glad in his works. He looks at the earth and it trembles. He touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being let my meditation be pleasing to him as for me i shall be glad in the lord our father in heaven may we be glad in you father glad that you have given us space and time that you've given us existence we were made lord for your glory made to behold your glory Lord, made to believe in your glory. The glory of your exalted nature. The glory of your mercy in sending your Son. The glory, Lord God, of your kindness to us and all men in so many ways. Oh, Father, the earth is full of your mercies. And Lord, you are full of grace. Thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for loving our souls. Thank you for being a God who can handle whatever we can't Lord and more for apart from Christ we can do nothing thank you Lord God for your wisdom that will order not only the universe but our own ways thank you for your goodness that will never be withdrawn yea it shall be on our heels all the days of our life Lord before we come into your presence thank you for these mercies and thank you for your works in Jesus name amen